Dulce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest begin to trudge. Men marched to sleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, in ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea. I saw him drowning. Yet all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children, ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum est, o patre mori. Welcome to the Belchers Podcast. I'm Dave Stevens. Quick note before we get started. Last episode, I announced that I had created a Twitter feed that will link to the text of the pieces I read here on the podcast. However, I failed to actually share with you the handle, I think it's called, of the feed. Now, while this may appear to have been a mistake, it was actually a clever tactic to build suspense. So now that I've allowed the suspense to build, I suppose I can tell you that if you'd like to subscribe to this very popular feed, with its one subscriber, the handle is at Bellatrist Pod, P-O-D at the end of Bellatrist, Papa Oscar Delta. And as a reminder, you can email me at bellatristpodcast at gmail.com if you have any suggestions, critiques, or other messages. As you have no doubt noticed, I have chosen a particularly cheery poem for this episode. Dulce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen. Yeah, this is a tough one to get through, but you just have to know this poem. It's important in many ways. As you may know, or may have guessed, the poem was set in the nightmare that was the trench warfare of the First World War. Owen was a British soldier who wrote this poem while he was in the hospital after being wounded in the war. He actually wrote all of his poems in a period of one year between 1917 and 1918 while he was recovering from his wounds. He was killed in 1918 after he returned to the war. He was only 25 years old. The poem was published in 1920, two years after the war ended. It's worth noting that it was after World War I that we saw the emergence of this sort of poetry, and it's important to understand how it played a role in awakening public awareness of the horrors of the battlefield. It's a bit difficult for us today to comprehend just how different World War I was from any other war that preceded it. It was the first war in which the cleverness of the Industrial Revolution combined with humanity's murderous tribal impulses. The trench warfare of this war was hell on earth. 
Soldiers were often forced to stand for days, up to their knees or waists in filthy, muddy water, so the blood and, well, you can imagine, far worse. Trenchfoot was common, where soldiers' feet began to literally rot away, leading to an almost sure painful death from infection. To make matters even worse, the war was being run by the nobility. Centuries of tradition said that noble title was the surefire way to receive an officer's commission in the military, as opposed to, say, one's ability as a leader or as a military strategist. As a result, the strategic command element of the war was run by amateurs. This combined with the fact that traditional warfare simply had no tactics for dealing with the new weapon systems that were being deployed, resulted in a frustrating stalemate which drug on for weeks and months. After time, those on the ground doing the actual fighting and dying began to take note of these things, and a deep, angry bitterness descended on many. And who could blame them? Owen's peace is an example of this sentiment, as it was taking hold of the soldiers in the trenches. No longer a glorious fight for king and country, the pointless, gratuitous horror of wholesale slaughter with automatic weapons and mustard gas displaced the propaganda of the recruiter, and conscripted soldiers took up their pens to write poems that gave voice to the reality of the trenches. The poem, by the way, is a retelling of an event which Owen actually experienced. The title and final line of the poem is a Latin phrase, which is taken from the Roman poet Horace, and it means, It is sweet and becoming to die for one's country. And this was a phrase used by recruiters to encourage young men to volunteer for the war. Let's walk through the poem. In the first stanza, he outlines the wretched existence of the soldier in the trenches. The cold, wet, seemingly endless days of stalemate in the war, in which thousands of lives would be lost to gain a few hundred feet of ground, only to be lost in a counterattack the next day, ground the men down to nubs. Knock-kneed and coughing like hags is how he describes himself and his fellow soldiers. You must remember while reading this that at the time, the official propaganda of the war depicted warriors as strong, strapping young men, eager to bring the fight to the enemy. Owen's brutal description of the shambling, wheezing men, stumbling in a stupor of exhaustion and despair from a pointless and seemingly never-ending stalemate, was in sharp contrast to official portrayals of the war to end all wars. The description of the men losing their boots is particularly painful to imagine. In an effort to combat Trenchfoot, the Allies had begun to issue rubber boots and hip waders. As a result, the men would stand in place in the muck, until before they realized it, the clinging mud had trapped their boots in a suction that would not let go, and they were forced to abandon them and walk back to the encampment in freezing cold and wet. Owen says that they limped on, bloodshod, as if they wore their very blood for boots. The end of the first stanza, and the whole of the second, describes a surprise mustard gas attack on his squad as they marched back to their rest. Drunk with fatigue, the speaker and his squad do not even hear the gas shells falling. The line, an ecstasy of fumbling, to describe the frantic rush to don your gas mask through the confusion of an attack and through the thick stupor of exhaustion, is one of the best lines I've ever encountered in poetry. Yeah, I first encountered this poem as an undergraduate, and during the summer between school years I'd work on my family's commercial fishing boat in Alaska. In the fishery, long hours without sleep are very common. I can remember a lot of times being suddenly woken up from a few stolen moments of sleep to some emergency or another, and stumbling drunk with fatigue 
to get on deck or to the engine room or lazarette to fix whatever was wrong. And during these times, the line, an ecstasy of fumbling, would sometimes come to my mind. Anyway, the poem then goes on to describe how one of his colleagues failed to get his mask on in time and was killed. They fling his body into a wagon behind which the speaker must march, all the while staring into the hanging face of his dead comrade. Like a devil sick of sin. Such a marvelous line to describe the macabre excess of slaughter and suffering of this war. As if the devil himself had become glutted on suffering and depravity, and now even he was pushing back from the table, slightly nauseated at the overindulgence. The bitterness with which this poem ends is intense. Look, there's a lot to criticize about the press today. The partisanship, the fake news on both sides, the selective deafness. It's not good. But you simply cannot imagine the level of official government-sanctioned lies that was the norm in Britain during the war. It was illegal to write anything that might have a negative impact on recruitment. Thousands of pro-war photos and articles and other bits of propaganda were produced by something called the Ministry of Information every month. The Ministry of Information. Doesn't that sound like something out of 1984 or Harry Potter's world under Voldemort's control? So just imagine how this poem would have contrasted with the official Rosie story. The final lines of the poem are aimed at those in charge of the war, both the command element and those running the war back home. If the description of his colleagues' lungs expelling bloody froth at the merest jolt of the cart wasn't enough to make the reader slightly nauseous, the contrast of that horror with the sickly phrase that it is sweet and becoming to die for one's country should do the trick. You know, another poem just came to mind, and I I think I'll quote it briefly here, because it echoes the bitter resentment felt by the soldiers towards the noblemen. For context, officers would often take up command posts safely behind the front lines in the nicest hotel that the region offered. This poem by Siegfried Sasson, a name I'm almost certainly mispronouncing there, was written one year after Dulce at Decoramast. It's called Base Details. If I were fierce and bald and short of breath, I'd live with scarlet majors at the base and speed glum heroes up the line to death. You'd see me with my puffy, petulant face, guzzling and gulping in the best hotel. Reading the role of honor, poor young chap, I'd say, I used to know his father well. Yes, we've lost heavily in this last scrap. And when the war is done, and youth stone dead, I toddle safely home and die in bed. Can't you just hear the speaker nearly spit out the last line with overwhelming contempt? In bed. Note how the poem explicitly compares the fat, incompetent officers to toddlers. They're bald, puffy, petulant, red-faced. That's what the whole scarlet major's line means. They guzzle and gulp their food, and they toddle home. So, I think you get the picture. These poems were produced before there were video cameras to record the naked girl covered in napalm running from an attack in Vietnam. They were all the public had to fully comprehend the horrors of war. You know, it amazes me the speed at which we collectively forget lessons so huge that one would assume they would never, could never be forgotten. I'm 47 years old. 
I can remember watching on television the Berlin Wall being pulled down. The horrors of communism and other experiments in Marxism should be fresh in our minds. But strangely, when I talk to my 18-year-old daughter's friends about history, they'll readily reference the Holocaust and Nazi Germany as a great horror of the 20th century. But when asked about the terrors of Stalin, Lenin, Mao, Pol Pot, they blink at you. They don't quite know what you mean. We forget so quickly. And literature is here in part to help us remember. To experience the realities of war through poetry such as this, or novels like The Red Badge of Courage, or Johnny Got His Gun, or All Quiet on the Western Front, allows those of us who have never gone to war to understand its horror without having to live through it. These stories teach us the real meaning of patriotism while simultaneously inoculating us against the temptations of Jengoism. To paraphrase a previous poem that we've covered, literature is a soil which is proper to grow wise in. I hope you found this poem worth having in your brain, even if it wasn't particularly pleasant to experience. Next podcast, I promise something a bit lighter. The purpose of literature is not to save your soul. It is to make your soul worth saving. Now, here's the poem one more time. Dulceet Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest begin to trudge. Men marched to sleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, in ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea. I saw him drowning. Yet all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, Drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children, ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulceat de quormest, o patre mori.